This is the Business of College Sports podcast with your host, the founder of businessofcollegesports.com, Christy Dosh. Find her on Twitter and Instagram at sportsbizmiss. Welcome to the Business of College Sports podcast. I'm your host, Christy Dosh, the Sports Biz Miss. And today I have as guest Steve Hank. He has extensive experience working in college athletics, and now he is the executive vice president at AffiniQuest, overseeing their collegiate athletics market, working on strategies for athletic departments with a focus on business intelligence, fan engagement, and revenue outcomes. He previously was the chief revenue officer at the University of Texas at Austin, and prior to that, he spent 12 years at Arizona State University, where he led the revenue-generating areas of Sunday. Athletic. So we are going to be chatting today all about data and how to engage your fans on a personal level and how to maximize the revenue generating areas of your athletic department. I had such a great time talking to Steve. I hope you enjoy it as well. So without further ado, here is my interview with Steve Hank. Steve, welcome to the Business of College Sports podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Christy. Really looking forward to it. You and I have been trying to put this together for a while, but I think we actually got the perfect timing because we're right at the beginning of not only college football season, but a brand new school year, new seasons for all of the sports. And I think this is the perfect time for all of the admins here in the audience to hear more about the things that you're working on and the ways in which maybe they can make some transformations in their department so that they can make more money, right? (laughs) I saw that you were previously the chief revenue officer at the University of Texas. And I know before that you had experience at Arizona State. And I find that a lot of young administrators listen to the podcast uh, and enjoy hearing a little bit about your career trajectory. So I was hoping you could kind of give us a little bit of a brief synopsis of what you've done on campuses. And then we'll jump into talking about what you are doing now at AffiniQuest. So how did your journey in college athletics begin? What was that first job? Well, my my job first started when I was actually in college, and I worked in the athletic department uh, where I did my undergrad at Notre Dame and really caught the bug for working in collegiate athletics. Um, But then I moved from collegiate athletics and spent some time working in professional athletics in the corporate side of sports with the Chicago Bulls and then Reebok. Um, And then actually went over and spent some time working with DirecTV. So I've seen the professional side of sports, the corporate side of sports with Reebok, and the corporate sponsor side, and then also the broadcasting side um, in working with DirecTV. But then I followed back to my passion, and I was able to spend 12 years at Arizona State running their revenue operations there, which led me to the University of Texas. And while at um, the University of Texas and at Arizona State, um, I was privileged to work with S- with um, AffiniQuest's predecessor company, SSB. And so that led me over, um, led me over. But I've always had the passion for working with student athletes and the affinity um, that comes with collegiate athletics, because I think it is the most unique of any of the sports, um, sports leagues or sports, the, of the sports business, the most unique position in sports. What is it about that revenue side of things that interested you? Like, what's your undergraduate degree in? Uh, my undergraduate degree is I have two majors. I did computer applications um, and government. Um, okay. But when I was there, um, so, you know, learning how to communicate and how to talk with people mm-hmm. um, 
and that really was was what the what my degree actually taught me how to do. So um, I don't use directly my degree every single day, but I do have my MBA from Arizona State, which I do apply um, on the revenue side um, practically every single day. But I really think that the ability to generate the resources um, and a lot of people don't realize that while we talk about the revenues that are generated from college football, from college basketball, um, and the large numbers, especially now that realignment, NIL, and everything is taking center stage, there also is the water polo player. There is the tennis player. There is the golfer. And those student athletes need to have the funding generated for their programs to give them the opportunity. And one of the things, and that's one of the passions that I really have is making sure that we can provide the revenue for those student athletes to have follow and live their dreams as well. It's not just about those big few sports. It's about all of the sports, which also supports, quite frankly, our Olympic movement in the United States, where the United States does not fund the Olympic movement like many other countries do. The university system functions as a training ground for the Olympics um, for many as well. So that's where I get the passion for driving the revenue for the impact that it has on the student athlete. And I, I think we have that in common. That has what has driven me towards this as my focus as a journalist and as a blogger and a podcaster and a consultant, because I was a practicing attorney and I did nothing related to sports, but I was a huge sports fan. And I was in law school at the University of Florida when the Gators won a football national championship and two basketball national championships. Then they won football again the year after I left. So I always tell people I did not grow up a Florida Gator fan. I grew up up in Atlanta. My dad was more of a Georgia Tech fan, uh, but it was really easy to become a Florida fan when you're there, when they're just winning championships left and right. But I became super interested in the finances around college athletics. And I don't even remember what that like first story or first tidbit was I learned that made me interested in it. But when I wrote my book, Saturday Millionaires, about the business side of college athletics, I wrote it based on these misconceptions I had about college athletics as a fan and how it worked as a business in my fan mind. And then after years of writing about it and getting to go visit campuses, what I learned and, you know, a big one for me, and I, I still find myself explaining to fans all the time, is that most sports, when you get outside of football and men's basketball, don't make money. And you've got these student athletes that you've got to provide scholarships for and, you know, food and, uh, you know, their living situation. And now we've got cost of attendance. And then you've got coaches and trainers and facilities and academic support and, you know, all the different things that they get inside of an athletic department. And as a fan, I thought all the sports made some money. You know, it's hard to remember way back then, but I think that's sort of how I came at it. And then I was just fascinated as I learned how it really worked. So I think you and I have that in common. And that's why I was so excited to have this podcast. When we were first talking about doing it, we were sort of talking about ticketing. And I thought, I don't know that much about ticketing, but my audience might be interested. And then I looked more into your background and listened to another podcast you were on. And I thought, we're going to have fun with this because I am super interested in how athletic departments maximize those revenue streams. And, and most of our listeners work within college athletics. They're not fans. So they get that at a base level. And hopefully I'm going to lead you down the path and ask you some good questions uh, where we can maybe help them out to develop or, um, you know, 
increase the revenue that they're making through these streams. So uh, thank you for sharing a little bit about your career trajectory. I know everybody always enjoys hearing that. And I wanted to ask you, you know, you've been on multiple campuses now. What are some of the main revenue struggles you have witnessed in college athletics? The main revenue struggles are, are is that the streams have really been getting maximized in terms of you really don't have that many levers that you could pull. You can pull your television contract revenue, your sponsorship contract revenue. You can do your ticket pricing, um, your concessions and your merchandise. But when many of those deals, especially your multimedia rights and your television contracts are locked into long term agreements, making short-term adjust, making adjustments as things move um, is a challenge. And so looking at optimizing absolutely every single one of those streams and maximizing them is essential. But the one that you have the greatest control over is the donations and also the ticket sales. But mm -hmm. the things that Collegiate Athletics has been doing, has not been doing, and is starting to finally realize is that they need to leverage the affinity that people have for their school. You just talked about the University of Florida and the passion that you have for it, and it was palpable. And people's affinity for their institution that they attended is significantly higher. And it's been proven through surveys and studies mm -hmm. that have shown than the affinity they have for a professional sports team. But teams, the NFL, the NBA and the other major professional sports teams have done a much better job of connecting on a personal level with the constituents that they serve. And universities have been about 10 to 15 years behind the curve. Wow. So what you really have to do is you have to unlock all of that valuable information you have about people so that you can meet their needs. And that's really the big challenge in revenue is about understanding what is it is that your constituents need and want and delivering it to them in a personalized way that allows you to meet their needs and develop that long-term relationship with gets them to engage on a level that is very, very deep. Are there any examples you can give us of ways pro sports teams have done this a little better historically than college athletics has? Absolutely. Um, the professional leagues have done a really good job of taking all of the information that has traditionally been siloed in operational systems. So you have all the information that sits in your ticketing system that gives your seating location. If somebody sits in section seven, row four, seats one through four. Then you have all the information that's in the merchandise system that says they like to buy um, winter gloves and polo shirts. And then they have all the survey information that comes in that talks about their behavior, how they're interacting with you in your newsletters and your websites. Each one of those, that information is siloed. But when you bring it all together and you put it in one central repository and you can manage it, now you can build a profile and a persona and segment your fans and start communicating with them in a way that is relevant to them. How you communicate with a 23-year-old young alumnus is very, very different than how you communicate with a 65-year-old um, person who graduated you know, 40 years ago or 40 yeah. or 50 years ago. And there are different points in their life and there are different points of that journey. And communicating with them in a way that is relevant to them. Communicating, you're going to have to communicate with a 65-year-old, possibly with an outreach and a phone call in an email. 
and even direct mail, which I know people are like, wow, direct <laughs> mail, back. but that's because that is how you meet that individual's need where you have the young 23 year old who you may find on Twitter, TikTok, in the different social media platforms is the way to engage with them. So you have to be able to classify people, understand what their wants and needs are, and then meet them where they are. And by meeting them where they are, you can, you can maximize the engagement that you get and take people on that journey, which the end result is revenue. So this is not a chase for dollars and saying, we're here to maximize revenue. What it is, is it's to maximize the affinity that people have, to maximize the engagement. And revenue is the byproduct of deepening that relationship. So part of what I heard there was University of Florida thinks I'm old if they're sending me things in the mail. <laughs> I was thinking about, you know, my, my husband went to Auburn for undergrad. I went to a really small school, Oglethorpe University for undergrad, but then Florida for law school. He's seven years older than I am. And as you were talking, I was thinking, you know what? He gets a lot of stuff in the mail. I don't. That's because Auburn thinks he's old and I'm still in the young category for UF. That's what I'm going to tell him at least. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'm wondering because I've done some consulting in uh, athletic departments, and I'm wondering how much you think that this problem, this silo problem, stems from their at many schools, if not most schools, there being sort of separate systems on the university side as opposed to the athletic side. And at the schools that I've worked with, they're not real good about sharing that. They get a little competitive about that. Uh, is, is that just my limited experience? Or do you think that happens a lot in college athletics? Oh, it happens a lot. But the walls are starting to break down. Um, and you're starting to see the needs across entire institutions. The reason for that is um, if you go back and you look, there was a fabulous white paper written called The, the Lost Decade in Higher Education which talked about the period from the end of 2008 through the end of 2018. And it talks about the precipitous decline of funding from state, from the state level to state institutions and how tuition is being raised and raised and raised and raised. Um, we're, I think we're getting to a point where people are questioning the value of a college education because tuition has gotten so high. So yeah. it can't go any higher. So with that, they are starting to understand that they have to start applying business principles to what it is they're doing at the institutional level. And they have to start collaborating and working together and sharing information. But to do that, you have to have proper protocols in place, processes, security mechanisms that enable that so that certain people, can, only certain people can see the information on a need to know basis. In order to do that, you have to put it into one secure central location and a platform that enables you to manage that efficiently and effectively and have the proper protocols and processes in place. So is that a problem? Yes. But are you starting to see institutions realize that if they don't change, they're going to be left behind because they don't have that golden pot of money mm -hmm. coming state anymore that they have to find new ways of doing it and that change is happening and it's not an evolution that's happening right now it's a revolution that's happening in higher ed and that is positively impacting collegiate athletics do you have advice for folks who are maybe sort of on the more senior level on the athletic side how you broach this conversation on the university side uh and, and the sort of points you can make to uh, encourage them to have this sort of collaboration going forward absolutely 
um, the best thing they can do is realize that it is a two-way street. And in order to get something from somebody, you need to give something. A development department really wants to understand where people, what events they're attending, where they sit. You know, that donor officer that may be on the university foundation side would love to know that somebody is sitting in section 30 seats one through four so they can do the drop-by visit. It's yes. about trust. And each group has to give a little bit. And there's a, it, it's, if you start with the process with crawl, walk, run, sprint, don't jump into the deep end of the pool. You know, first wade in, figure it out and do a small project and say, we're going to share this information. Then as you come through, um, you know, share more, share more, share more. And then pe as people get comfortable that you don't do it all at once, you set up and you get some quick wins so that people get comfortable and realize that they too um, can benefit from it. And you don't need to name any schools with this question, but are there any examples you can give of schools that you've worked with that are navigating this relationship of athletics and the university together and really making it work for them, having access to that data on both sides? Arizona State is a good example of an institution that's starting to do it. Um, North Carolina is a good example of another institution um, that is doing it. You're starting to see schools that are up and coming, like Notre Dame is also really um, moving into the ground, moving into that realm as well. Mm -hmm. So those three schools um, are really putting a focus on on doing it, but it's a conversation. Um, you mentioned NACTA during our conversation prior to the call, and you know it was a topic when we were out there about how do we engage, how do we meet the needs of our constituents? Because it's so easy right now with all of the conversation focusing on the college football playoff expansion, mm -hmm. uh, NIL, on conference realignment. Everybody's focusing on those really large items. We can't forget the bedrock of collegiate athletics, which is two things, the student athletes and the constituents and the fans that are there. Without either of those two groups, collegiate athletics doesn't exist. And I think we are overlooking right now, making sure that we don't overlook that foundational group of one of the two foundational groups, which is the fan, and make sure that you take care of and meet their needs. Because the fan does not look at, or you don't look at the University of Florida as the University of Florida Athletic Department, the University of Florida Business School, or the Journalism School. You look at it holistically. And they want you want the relationship with the University of Florida. So that is how they perceive it. Institutions have to start adapting to meet the needs of the constituents, not force them to meet their needs. Well, I, I won't go down a whole nother rabbit hole with this, but my eyes have really been open uh, in the last year because I have started teaching at the University of Florida. And um, I, I have taught once before at University of North Florida, but I'm now three semesters in at University of Florida. And I'm teaching in two different academic departments. I'm teaching in the College of Journalism. I'm also teaching in the College of Health and Human Performance with the Sports Management Program. And I'm teaching NIL in both of those schools which ends up bringing the athletic department into some of my conversations. And I am learning that academia in general is just very siloed <laughs> because, uh, you know, when I'm doing something in one department and I tell the other department about it, like they're not used to talking to each other or I, I'm getting ready to host an event on campus that will have already happened by the time this podcast comes out. But I had to figure out like 
the events happening because of me, which department do I tell? Because I teach for both of them. One of them is going to want to sort of own this event and like, how do I choose between them? <laughs> so I am getting some real uh, firsthand experience in these silos of uh, <laughs> higher academics. To build, to build on what you're saying, um, and you asked earlier, what can a senior administrator do? Find a champion on the other side. There are people who want to engage and to do that change. Um, and finding somebody over in, in the development office, finding somebody over in the alumni association, finding that one person, reach out because those people exist. And the yeah. people who, there are the people that are stuck in their ways and don't want to change because this is the way we've done it at XYZ University for the last 30 years. Yeah. Well, guess what? It's a new era. And you have to evolve. You have to change. Find those partners that you can work with, build the relationship, and have each one of them step out there a little on the limb. Yeah, I think that's fantastic advice. And, uh, you know, I have been trying to be that person at some level at UF because I'm teaching these two NIL classes, one in the College of Journalism and one in the Sports Management Department. But I have also over the years spoken a number of times in the athletic department, and I obviously know a lot of the folks over there. And so keeping track of the academic offerings or, or really just the educational offerings they have for their student athletes. And then I have my NIL classes, which I have student athletes in both classes, but I also have tons of non-athletes in those classes too, but I'm excited about NIL and I want to get professors all over campus involved because I want UF as a UF law grad and as now a UF professor, I want UF to have like the most comprehensive NIL curriculum in the country, but I I'm not on campus. I teach online. And so I don't know as many people in other departments. And I've actually been really lucky that I, a student athlete who was my teaching assistant in the spring semester, who I now have again as my teaching assistant in a different class this fall, she has been so good about email introducing me to professors in other departments where she has her major and saying, hey, this professor over in the entrepreneurship program is really interested uh, in NIL or, hey, this PR professor is thinking about ways to integrate it in PR curriculum. And so she's actually been really good about introducing me around. And she's a student athlete who just is excited about NIL, too. So I, I am navigating my own attempt to sort of work across academics and athletics. So I'll keep Keep you posted on how that goes. That's right. Look forward to it. It's been a learning experience. We'll leave it at that. Sure it is. Okay. There's so many different roads I could go down with you, but I heard you on another podcast talking about conference realignment. And I thought this was not on my original set of questions for you. And I thought, oh, this is such a good subject. I want to get into this because I reported a lot on conference realignment a decade ago at the beginning of my career. And quite frankly, I've sort of ignored it this most recent round because I am so tunnel vision focused on NIL as a reporter. And I heard you talking about on that podcast about um, new opportunities conference realignment might present, but also challenges it might present for schools who were maybe left out of realignment and fans who thought that their school was going to be part of it and then they weren't. So I was hoping maybe we could talk through a little bit both the opportunities and the challenges that conference realignment presents in terms of engaging your fans. So I don't know if you want to start with the good news or the bad news. What are the opportunities or what are the challenges? <laughs> and I think it, it actually has just recently shifted in the last week with okay. the 
announcement of the and the vote by the presidents announcing the 12 team college playoff that gave yes. six spots to the top six conference champions. And I think that that really is going to potentially um, benefit a lot of conferences that thought that may, they might have potentially been left out. Mm-hmm. So um, that has really provided, I think, a boon um, for a lot of conferences that may not be either the Big Ten or the SEC and really provide some, I think, some much needed stability to collegiate athletics. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is, you know, there are some rivalries that are going to be rekindled with conference realignment. The University of Texas is moving into the SEC and you're going to see, you know, there's a big rivalry, historical rivalry from their days back in the Southwest Conference with the University of Arkansas that is going to come. But you're also going to have some, and also Texas A&M obviously is in, in using yes. Texas as an example. So there's some positives in some brand new um, rivalries that will be created. Um, there's going to be a lot of great things when USC flies across the country and visits, you know, college station or not college station, college park and, and goes to Penn state and goes to the experience, their first whiteout. So there's going to be a lot yeah. of excitement that's going to be around those items and new traditions, but you're also going to have some traditions and, you know, the old Northern California versus Southern California poll and a lot of historical things that have been around for a long time. And for those schools that have been left behind, they're going to have to find the ways to communicate. And, you know, everything in life is about messaging and communication and making sure that you can do it easily and effectively and, and most importantly, in a relevant way to people. Mm-hmm. But in order to do that, you have to understand who they are. And that is really what is vital is we t- the constituents at the collegiate athletics level for so long have been taken for granted. The theory on selling tickets used to be throw open the gates and people will come. <laughs> the, we now live in an era of personalization that has been driven by companies like Amazon. I mean, you go to Amazon, Amazon tells you what you need to buy before you even know that you need to buy it. Because it yeah. heard me talking in the house. I know it. <laughs> That's correct. And and with that, but we have all of that information that these that our constituents have provided to the institutions voluntarily. And so messaging and getting your talking points out in a way that is relevant to those people that makes them explains this is why we're doing it. This is the benefit it is to the institution. This is what benefits the student athletes. This is how it benefits us financially. This is why we have made these realignment moves but it's all about communicating effectively with your constituents. So um, it's going to be an exciting period. There's going to be a lot of new, there's going to be a lot of things that are, that are uh, um, going to die traditions that are going to die, but change is sometimes inevitable. And we're not in an evolution in collegiate athletics right now. I think we're seeing a once in a lifetime revolution. You know, you mentioned that challenge, getting people through the gates. And I have to admit, I'm a bad Gator fan. I got invited to go to the home opener with Utah. But frankly, Labor Day weekend was the only weekend the entire fall that I was not traveling. And I just wanted to be home with my two TVs so that I could watch uh, Ohio State and uh, Notre Dame play at the same time as Florida and Utah. And I'm not sitting in the stadium trying to watch it on my phone and having trouble with Wi-Fi. Plus, it's just hot this time of year in Florida. Bad, bad Gator fan. I did not go. I did not want to go. I wanted to stay at home. 
how do you not only compete with that at-home experience, but I've also heard a lot of schools over the last few years, uh, of course, minus the, the COVID year, of course, talking about the difficulty getting fans, even once you've gotten them to town, getting them to leave their tailgate and come inside the stadium because they've made their tailgate so comfy and luxurious these days. So um, how do you combat that and make it an experience at the game, not just for football, but for every sport that makes fans want to come out and be in the stadium or in the arena. It gets down to understanding the different segments that you have in the institution, delivering a different experience for each area. Um, somebody who's sitting in between the thirties and the lower level is going to be in a different income bracket than somebody that's sitting in the upper level end zone. Um, they may be at a different journey in their life. Um, one will be more mature and, and have had more time in their career to build up the means to actually afford those seats mm -hmm. versus you may have somebody that has four seats up in the upper deck with their family and your young children. So you have to personalize the experience by in the upper deck. Don't serve a quarter pound hot dog for $7. Serve an eighth of a pound hot dog for three so that the family can go in and find something that they can afford. So something that meets those needs to where they say, you know what, I can come to the game. I can enjoy the Gator game and have the cotton candy for my kids so that my kids are happy. Have the, the small ice cream that is up there. We're down in the higher price level. Have the more deluxe food. Have the pulled pork sandwiches with all the trimmings in the, mm -hmm. the higher end. So it's about understanding each one of those constituent areas, profiling them, and meeting their needs. And then also customer service in terms of having somebody welcome you to the game that when you come and say, you know, welcome, we're glad you're here. Thank you for coming. And a smile. And it is all about when somebody says thank you, they're the two most underused words in the English language. And what do people want? They want to feel appreciated and feel welcome. And so when you meet their needs and say, wow, this is easy, have a good parking plan. Have things priced at the level that meet the needs of those individuals. Meet the needs. Provide the high end for the high end areas. Provide the family and the value areas for the value areas so that everybody can find what it is that they're looking for at the event so there's something for everybody. And don't try and whitewash it with one broad brush mm -hmm. in different segments so that you're being relevant to everybody. Yeah, that's great advice. Tell people a little bit about what AffiniQuest does for athletic departments and the types of problems you help athletic departments tackle. Right. So with athletic departments, what we help them do is create that affinity, build that affinity and engage with their fans appropriately because fans have provided a wealth of information voluntarily to the athletic departments. You've provided what your merchandise purchases are, what your seat location is. You're interacting with the emails. You're interacting by making contributions. And all of those systems have a great operational need. You know, the ticketing providers do a fantastic job of selling tickets and getting people in the building. What they don't do is they don't help market the tickets. Those are operational systems that are focused on a ticket sale. So what we do is we take all of that valuable information that is siloed and each one of those systems put it in the one central location and create a golden record and then append it with other information. Find out, are they married? 
How many kids do they have? Um, what type of a car do they drive? So then you can build a persona and you can start to communicate with people in relevant ways. But we also overlay it with sophisticated predictive analytics so that we can identify to people because athletic departments are strapped for resources. Mm-hmm. So what we're able to do is if they have 10,000 potential targets, but they only have the resources to be able to communicate effectively with their sales team with a thousand, with our propensity and capacity scoring, we are able to tell them what order to contact the people and what to, what to offer them so that you're able to meet their needs. So it's actually being more efficient. So somebody mm-hmm. that feel they're being marketed to, they say, wow, this is a great offer and something that they see value in. Yeah. So that's what we do. We layer in sophisticated predictive analytics that identifies the propensity and capacity of somebody to take a particular action. I would guess, too, the the more of that that you know and can piece together. I, I spent part of this summer speaking at a conference that was all uh, folks on the university side who deal with corporate partnerships. And so I spent three days at that conference and learned more about uh, corporate partnerships and university marketing than I ever wanted or needed to know previously. Uh, but I was there to talk about NIL because they were really interested in that. And I got the benefit of sitting in on these other sessions. And I'm thinking, you know, that level of data about your fans has to be useful, not just for engaging the fans, but also going to a potential sponsor and saying, hey, look, we know that X percent of our, you know, donors who sit in this section drive Alexis. You know, I always think back to I'm a Braves fan. I grew up in Atlanta and the Braves always had this Lexus parking lot. And if you drove a Lexus, you got to park in that parking lot. I think it was for free. I didn't drive a Lexus, so I don't remember the exact details, but they always had that. And so as you were talking, I was thinking, yeah, the more you know about what kind of car they drive and the other things that they're interested in, that helps you not just engage them as fans, but maybe offer other experiences and things to them through corporate partnerships as well. Am I totally off base with that. No, you're, you're absolutely 100% spot on. And you asked earlier what the pros do differently. That is where the pros have done an excellent job because they control, um, they don't usually outsource their sponsorship rights in professional athletics. It's usually all in one vertical. Right. Uh, collegiate athletics is chosen with most cases to outsource their rights. So it's a little more complicated to navigate, but they're starting to figure out how to um, properly leverage that information into um, work collaboratively with the rights holders to be able to achieve that goal for the benefit of both the, the sponsors and the institution, but most importantly, the constituents. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Are there easy ways to pull in that data that your multimedia right holder has with all this other data you have sitting around athletics and around the university into one cohesive system? Is that even possible right now? Yes, we do it in many cases for our institutions. Oh, see, I teed you up and I didn't even mean to. I, I swear <laughs> he didn't pay me to do this. <laughs> I'm just, I'm thinking through the experiences I have and trying to piece them all together. Uh, I have been so buried in NIL for the last 15 or 16 months that I have forgotten everything else I knew about college athletics. So I'm getting back in the groove this fall. <laughs> What about NIL? I don't want to let you go without hitting on NIL because it is my entire world right now. Is NIL something that is on your radar at AffiniQuest? And that, has it played a role in what you all do yet? Or do you think it will down the road? It absolutely will down the road. Has it played a role yet? Not to the extent because I think things are still 
in their infancy stage and being figured out. It's kind of like the little, the wild west out there a little bit. Yeah. Um, we hear that term a lot. <laughs> and um, with that, I, I think in the next 24 months, 12 to 24 months, we're going to start to see a settling. And, um, and I think you're going to start to see some consistency and some application of some rules, depending upon, I don't know, where's the regulation going to come from? Is it going to come from Congress? Is it going to come at the conference level? Is it, where is, but I think there will be some guide guardrails that are going to be put in place over the next 12, 24 months. And I think they're necessary, um, for, for where it's going. So, um, in order to build a platform that is standard and that can, can do it, you need to clearly understand what those guardrails are. Um, but we are preparing, we absolutely are preparing because the access to the constituents, um, is something that, uh, um, you know, marketers that are participating with the student athletes, um, with their rights are going to want access to. So we are absolutely preparing for that eventuality. And in some cases, working with some of, uh, some of the institutions, um, to look at how their best approach can be done. Well, I will have to check back in with you maybe in six months, a year, and see where we're at with that because um, NIL is the space that I am most interested in currently, and it seems to be seeping into all the other areas of college athletics pretty quickly at this point. So we'll have to check back in on that, and you keep me posted if anything changes on your end. <laughs> Absolutely, will do. Thank you for joining the podcast, Steve. I really appreciate it. And we will make sure and put a link in the show notes if people want to check out more about AffiniQuest. And if they want to reach out to you, are, are you active on social? Where's the best way for them to find you? The best way to find me is through AffiniQuest.com, um, our website. Um, and that is, uh, or on LinkedIn. My profile is on LinkedIn. Um, I will put so, that in the show notes. Uh, that would be great as well. Fantastic. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for having me, Christy. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much to Steve Hank for joining the Business of College Sports podcast. I know that I learned some new things about revenue generation and data collection and really growing those relationships between your athletic department and the university. I hope you use some uh, learned some new things that you can use as well. Thanks again to Steve and thank you for listening to the Business of College Sports podcast. I will be back again next week with hopefully what is a, another fantastic guest.